welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 345 and my conversation with the education representative for Palin Music Center, serving the Kansas City metro area, Kent Lineberry. We'll check in with him shortly because the semester is over. We made it. Grades are all in, and more importantly, the Canvas setting on the Mizzou website for my classes, which had a list of eight to 10 different assignments that needed to be graded, spread across four separate classes about a week ago, now has the magical listing of nothing for now and nothing for the next week. And it was a marathon of grading over the course of the past week to get everything done. And done it is. Graduation ceremonies and parties have occurred, and things are generally quiet in the city. Time to enjoy the summer, and let's start that by jumping right into our conversation with Kent Lineberry. I've been wanting to have Kent on the show for a while, and it was great to have him on. I got connected with him through various percussion circles over the years, and he has quite a great backstory as it relates to the percussion field. Kent's been involved in percussion in various circles for much of his life. He's been closely involved with drumlines and drum corps since he was in high school and was involved with drumlines at various college stops. He's also been in the percussion specialist field and now uses his experience to not only work with many band programs through Palin Music, but also serves as a mentor for many. His experiences and advice are timely and critical for those in the field and he's able to provide this while also being a lot of fun to talk to. We get to all of that and more in this interview, so here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on April 28th, 2023, and it begins right now. All right, so Kent, give me a summation of your percussion and other job-related activities as they are right now. So right now I'm a education representative for Palin Music in the Kansas City area. Uh, I visit directors and programs, band and orchestra, take care of their needs. That can be renting instruments to students, getting uh, repairs, taken back to our full service shop, returning them when they're done, dealing with the accounts, a lot of other things I'm sure we'll get into. So I do that full-time, and I love it. Percussively, right now, I'm not doing a ton outside of all the clinics and stuff I do that are kind of part of my job. So that's... Uh, Which, and what does that mean, clinics for part, that are part of your job? So Palin's kind of unique, particularly in our area, in that our full partners and even our uh, you know folks that we, we service that other music stores may service as well. Um, We have a commitment to uh, making time to do clinics, professional development. It can be all kinds of things. So for instance, in the summer, my colleague, Mike Steffen, who has got to be one of the best road reps in the country, the guy is fantastic. And I was lucky to be trained by him. He runs a summer PD series where we have buy your own breakfast, BYOB, and uh, we'll have a morning session and then 
we will go together uh, to some breakfast joint and uh, enjoy that. So this year, the very first one was me uh, this summer talking about um, electronics and uh, field timing. Um, so I talked quite a bit about uh, the thing I presented at Kansas PAS Day of Percussion about in 2017, which was the use of in-ear monitors in a drumline uh, as an alternative to the long ranger and the, the metronome. And uh, so I've done that. Or for instance, I had gone up to see the awesome people uh, at Central High School and St. Joe School District. Um, they wanted to know a little bit more about their mixer in terms of uh, EQing things, in terms of using, you know, what you might've called the remote layer, uh, essentially combining DCAs, combining things. And so, you know, I get to do a lot of cool stuff, even down to, I, um, I got to teach somebody's percussion ensemble for a little bit the other day, cause they were going to state small program that wanted some, uh, some feedback and kind of be put through their paces and, so I do get to uh, flex my chops a little bit, uh, but it's it's always funny. What's it going to be, you know? So are you at a single store, or are you in some kind of corporate side? Where 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 do you typically go to work? So we have our location in the Liberty area, and so some days I'll just leave from home and head, um, you know, straight to where I'm going if that's what makes sense logistically and. Uh, other days I'll you know go to the store, start out there, load up, you know, and get going. And then every day, uh, pretty much, I end up back at the store. Um, we do a high volume on uh, repairs and things like that. So I, I'll come back in with a truckload of repairs and get them entered in and everything. And uh, so out of that Liberty store, um, but there's actually some cool news um, that uh, if it hasn't been announced yet officially it will be by the time this pod podcast is available uh, we are actually opening another location uh in on the kansas side and so mm -hmm. stay tuned for that but we will the relationships are the most important part of this so we will continue serving the people we serve but when i'm serving kansas folks or maybe even you know more towards the eastern or excuse me western side of the state near state line road i may operate out of that kansas store uh, or I may do it out of the Liberty store. What is the range of your store in terms of how many schools, how, how far out from Liberty are, do you have to travel to get to every school that you're repping? The interesting thing is that we've grown so much over the last two years that that's a super moving target. Um, you know, we go pretty much all the way to the North uh, end of the state. Uh, and we go out east, like up to uh, Maryville. Yes. Okay. Uh, St. Joe, my, my, uh, colleague Rob, uh, goes all over in that, uh, Trenton, you know, all that area up there. Yeah. Chillicothe. Uh, mm -hmm. Chillicothe. Yeah. We go as far east as Higginsville and that's where we butt up against the Columbia store. Yeah. Uh, which by the way, those guys are amazing. I love yeah. the Columbia peeps. So we go out that way and then we go as far south, you know, I don't know, like hour and 15 minutes south of Liberty. And then we go out into Kansas. Right now we're getting, to be honest, pulled into Kansas. That's why we uh, are going to have that new location because there's just so much demand for the kind of thing that we do. 
does your store Liberty, is it also service like drum set, guitar, that side, or is it simply just kind of band instruments, orchestral instruments? It had been both for some time, yeah. what we would call combo and then what we call B&O, right? It's really interesting. So we, we operated out of this uh, strip, strip mall, you know, long shotgun space uh, in a, a good location in Liberty. And the front two thirds of the store was lessons and, you know, all the retail stuff. And then the back third was the repair shop. And our little desk that three of us operated off of one desk. And, you know, it, it was very, very cramped to start with. But this, the Kansas City Liberty location has basically doubled in the last couple of years in every meaningful way, which is unbelievable. You know, um, most folks would hope for 8% growth or something like that. And what we do catches on so fast that um, it just, it gets crazy. So we had to, the company had to rent another whole uh, section. And so now we've had this major overhaul where the back that used to be the shop uh, and the road operations part is now guitar, drum, synth, electronics, mecca. It's unbelievable. So the guy that they hired to be the combo manager, his name is Tyler Cirelli. And he, uh, before he worked for us, he was the uh, lead guitarist and the music coordinator, I think it was, for Florida Georgia Line. Mm, okay. So I walked into Emmett, our manager. I walked in his office one day and he's like, guess who I interviewed for the B&O or combo manager? And I said, who? And he says, Tyler Cirelli. And I was like, that's cute. And he's like, no, seriously. And I didn't know this, but he's a Liberty guy. Grew up here. He took lessons from Rob Latham at our store. Um, and, you know, the guy, you know, has played everywhere, you know, done everything. It's crazy. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's got a family and kids and he wanted to change his pace of life a little bit, I think. So, you know, we've got him working there and it's unbelievable because touring musicians will come and they'll go to this back room, which is full of Everything from the beginning to the high-end guitars. We even do used uh, gear. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, drum sets all over. And he, I walked in the other day, and he was sitting there with this pedal. It wasn't pedals, but it was like effects pedals. Yeah. But it was basically the whole effects chain all in one unit. And it was just going through a PA speaker with mm -hmm. this, this touring musician. And they were working out what to do. And he was able to tell him, yeah, man, when I played in this stadium, it felt like this. But when I was doing this tour, we had enough monitors that it didn't bother me or, you know what I mean? And I just sat there and I thought, this is unbelievable. There's no, there's no guitar, you know, combo shop that has this level of people involved. And then the gear that the company has committed to having out here. I mean, we have people come in all the time and say, well, I, this is where I'm going from now on. I'm not going to that other place, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, so that's cool, right? Yeah. And then the new part that we uh, you know, started renting and built out, it's about two-thirds of it is the shop and about a third of it is the road operations. Yeah. And we've grown so fast that we're already looking around going, huh, when all the summer repairs are here, and our rental instruments for the year get split out in Springfield and sent up to us, we're going to be up to our eyeballs and saxophones. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. it's, it's pretty hip. It's cool. 
does the location at Liberty have its own warehouse or room? How does the instrument repair portion work? So the shop is in that new space, right? And um, we've got all the industrial shelving and everything to use our height effectively. And it's an unbelievable shop um, in terms of quality and in terms of systems. This is unusual in this industry. I can look at a program that we have and I can look at a, a Google sheet that we run that our repair coordinator works on. I can look at it anytime a director asks me, hey, man, where's my clarinet? I can pull it up by my route day. I can look for their school. I can click on a link and see the PDF free estimate that they were given. I can tell them who's going to work on it, what day it's going to be on their bench, what day we expect it to be done. I can look and tell them, for instance, that the estimate's been done for two weeks, but mom won't call us back or whatever the case may be. And the last person to call was this person on this day and they used this method. It's crazy. You know what I mean? Like, so there's, there's so many answers at our fingertips. It's just a different thing. So warehousing, yes, they've got that space, but um, it's all very much um, like regimented in terms of where things are. Tell me about getting there. What, what were you doing before you started working for them? I've had a lot of different uh, positions, unlike a lot of um, band directors, music teachers, strings teachers, you know, they go to college, they do that and they go in the job and that's their the only job they ever have. You know, what they may move to different locations, but same gig, right? Yeah. Um, I've served as a director of operations for a publicly traded company. I was working for St. Luke's Neurology, outpatient neurology in Kansas City as a uh, change management process improvement type person. There are a number of things we worked on, but in terms of scheduling and being able to do these work cues, um, I made some changes and improvements uh, to that that made a huge difference. It was cool, you know what I mean? But, you know, my my passion is with music. And so Mike Steffen had called me and said, we have this pale and percussion preview. Would you like to be a clinician? I said, absolutely. That sounds great. That event is super cool. I think it's Saturday, September 16th. I'd have to double check. Um, but it's, uh, you know, real low cost entrance thing. And it's a clinic. It's not competitive. So we'll have, you know, a couple of really fantastic clinicians. A group will play and then they'll have the rest of that 45 minute interval to get that clinic. So, you know, I was like, great. I mean, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. Signed up for it. And then someone I had spoken to before about a job in the, the uh, music retail industry contacted me about a job, said, you know, we want to bring you on as a, a road rep. They had had a couple of people leave in short succession. And so we talked about it a little bit. And then, you know, I thought, yeah, I'm going to pursue this. So, uh, you know, I talked to Mike and I said, we got a conflict of interest. I don't want to embarrass you or me. And Mike said, wait, you want to be a road rep? And I said, yeah, I think that sounds cool. He said, don't do anything for 48 hours. Okay. And before I knew it, I'm talking to, you know, the folks at Palin and it just was such a good vibe um, that I, I said, you know, that's, that's what I'm going to have to do. Timeline. When was that? That was uh, in the summer two years ago. Let's back up and then we'll kind of trace back mm-hmm. to the present then. So where'd you grow up, Kent? Grew up in Jefferson City, Missouri. Um, oh, I've heard of that school. place. Yeah, <laughs> right. My high school band directors, you know, were Gene Kirkham, Steve Eubanks, and Mike Sestak was my percussion instructor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel very lucky. 
in terms of that lineage, there's a lot of people from even just my era that are music teachers at the top of the of the thing. It's it's awesome. So went there, and then uh, I marched after high school. I marched in the Colts, uh, played in the the tenor line, the quads, uh, ninety six through ninety nine. And that was an unbelievable experience as, you know, a lot of people feel about that, that type of experience. And, uh, my age out year, we were rehearsing in Madison, Wisconsin, or wherever we were near Madison. And the staff pulled me onto the staff bus. I said, we need to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, it's finals day. And you want to talk to me on the bus that I've never been on. Okay. <laughs> and they pulled me on the bus and they invited me to be on the staff the next year, which was, you know, just humbling. You know, because there had been this thing my rookie year that had been this thing called the Instructors College. And it was like, hey, if you want to teach drum course someday, come to these sessions at the major regionals. And mm -hmm. I didn't even go because I thought there's no way I'm ever going to get to do that. You know, and then I so I taught at Colts 2000 through 2005, came back for a little bit in 2007 and then was on staff 17, 18 and 19 as a percussion consultant. Um, I also worked at Spirit of Atlanta and a crossman and you know, and was supposed to work at Mandarin's, but with some of these life changes, uh, you know, it didn't work out, but Ben Piles and that team over there, they're unbelievable, good friends. And we worked together at Crossman or Spirit or, you know, some combination. Did you have family members in the arts? No. In fact, my father forbade me from being in band. Wow. Wanted to play percussion. He said, absolutely not. And my, um, it was an elementary band at a Catholic school, St. Martin's, you probably know where that's at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Earl, Earl Cleethermis was my, my teacher that he came to the house, knocked on the door and talked to my parents and said, you've got to let this kid play. And there's so many things that would not have happened had he not taken the time to do that. I've thanked him a number of times, you know, it, it just goes to show you that going the extra mile for a kiddo. You just, you never know where that influence is going to stop. Okay. So how did he know that you wanted to do band or that, that to even make that leap to, because we had been, yeah, we had been playing the instruments, trying things, doing like an extended instrument uh, fitting kind of session, but you know, in general music before the band actually like officially you're in a band class. I was real hot stuff at St. Martin's Elementary School because I could play wild thing with my left hand on a concert bass drum and my right hand on a snare drum. But you know, that's, that, I mean, that's that's such a that's such a cliche. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was uh, you know it, he just he recognized something. And he I think he knew I needed something. You know, I needed my thing. Yeah, sure. and uh, you know he saw something because he went and made it happen. So that would go through eighth grade, but I transferred to public school in eighth grade. I went to Simonson mm -hmm. and uh, then to the high school uh, after that. Gotcha. Which at the time was the only public high school. in Yeah. <laughs> and I went from a class of, I think, 18 to a class of like 600, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was a major change, but man, it was such a good change. I don't have any ill will towards my Catholic elementary upbringing, you know, sure. other than, you know, trying to, trying to keep the, the guilt to a minimum, you know, but it was a cool way to grow up. And then I sort of like got introduced to the real world, to be honest. Sure. In eighth grade. So. 
what was tell me a little bit about the band experience at Jeff City was 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 the concert portion uh, thought of as highly, you know, and with the same expectations as the marching or vice versa? Well, this is early to mid nineties. I mean, it was just yeah. a very different time. Sure, but the marching band was the most important thing to me. But at that time, Mike Sestak was teaching us. I mean more or less out of the kindness of his heart. He didn't have a full-time job. He was doing it, you know, I don't know exactly how it worked out, but he wasn't a full-time teacher until I was uh, graduated. And so there was only so much that could get done um, and everybody made good effort, but it wasn't the kind of percussion program that you would want now. Um, I played guitar as a kid, took lessons of capital music, you know, and um, so because I could move around the drums and because I could, had an ear, I ended up playing quads and timpani like professionally, which, yeah. you know, obviously that in high school, professionally playing one instrument's not a great thing, you know, but I have a lot of great memories. Uh, Gene Kirkham's name is spoken in hushed tones in some places, you know, and uh, it was, it was cool being in his band. We were playing. I, and I, that's something I, I don't know that per, like, I don't think I may have heard that name once. Yeah. I know Sestak, but, but I was, when yeah. I was connected down there, it was, he was, he was nearing the end. Sestak was. And so I have a memory. We were playing Macbeth of sailors and whales. Mm-hmm. And that, that final movement starts out with that timpani solo. Right. And so I dig in on those eighth notes, 16th notes and the horn, you know, the winds come in and Mr. Kirkham stops everything. He says, Limeberry, I need that louder. Okay. So, you know, I, I, Next rep, I played it quite a bit louder. He said, he cuts the band off and just screams, Library! Louder! I said, okay. So I went and grabbed like the wood mallets, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the hardest mallet I had, right? Right. Played it again at what I thought was, this is my, this is as hard as I'm going to play these drums, right? <laughs> he cuts the band off, just screams my name, and then counts it off again. So... I went caveman, you know, I'm like a junior in high school, right? Like not knowing any better. So I went full caveman and wrapped my fingers and thumb around the stick and walloped the drums. And that was what he wanted. He was happy with that. So there's a recording of me playing timpani, like, you know, like someone who's never seen the instrument before, you know what I mean? Just to get, just to get the volume, you know, but the, the marching band was a major point of pride for that community. You know, we were rolling around with a semi truck and nobody else was doing that. And it, it was it was weird almost sometimes. It was a um a seam between two different uh sort of time frames, you know, that like 80s, 90s, and then it started to change a lot into the late 90s and into the 2000s. Yeah. So, but it was it was fun. I was very proud of all that work we put in. What was the size of the marching band? Do you remember? My sophomore year, the band was enormous. I don't know, 250 or something like that. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. Wow. And it had a front ensemble? Yes. Of course, at that time, it was all acrylic mallets and, you know, xylophones. And, you know, it was just a very different thing. But, yeah, absolutely. And the cool thing is my little brother, his freshman year was my senior year. And he played in the front ensemble. I came back to teach. Uh, I was going to school in Warrensburg and then driving back to Jeff City one night a week to teach. Just such a good experience, you know. And I taught my brother in the quad line at Jeff mm-hmm. City. And, you know, I was marching drum corps and everything. My age out year, 
he tried out for the Colts. And uh, eventually he made the quad line. And so my age out year, I stood two people down from my, from my brother, you know, it was a cool thing. You know, there's other folks from that era, Tim Linsenbart at at Lindbergh and Mm -hmm. Jared Brockmeyer at Rockwood South. There's just a ton of really great educators that came out of that era. And it was a fun, special time. You know, it was cool. Aside from the band and other music activities, were you involved in anything else? Were you doing any sports? Were you doing student government, church-related activities, anything else that was filling out your time? You know, I, I was in the Scouts, and I gave that up at a certain point. I was doing guitar, and I gave that up at a certain point. And I really just went all in on percussion. You know, I was in a garage band that played at the talent show. I played, you know, guitar for that. But oh, nice. for the most part, you know, oh, yeah, we played uh, Plush. You know, it was it was terrible but stone temple pilots oh yeah i was like yeah okay yeah yeah and uh we had this lead guitarist who had this van halen 5150 amplifiers like four speakers the 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 for cabinet then the amp and then another cabinet on top nice and he was a, a really good guitarist but i think part of the reason he was in the group was because he had this big amp and then every every time every time we finished a song he would go over to the amp and start feeding back and play like eruption or something like that. Yeah. Like every time in practice. And it was like, we're all standing there for three minutes watching. It's like, Hey man, can you not, you know, <laughs> he's like lying on the ground. Like, yeah, no, seriously. Yeah. He's gone full Michael J Fox. You know what I mean? And yeah, the, uh, playing back to the future. And back to yeah. The future yeah. And we're just kind of standing there, like looking at each other, like, are we being serious right now? (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, I get it. You're better than me. All right. So, yeah. Yeah. He's way better. You need to simmer down now. You know? (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. I was thinking you would you were uh, you you would finish a song and the and everyone like would just be like you know like like pressed back <laughs> from the sound waves from the amp right yeah it was it was unnecessarily intense you know <laughs> yeah I also feel like that band existed solely to get giant packs of tacos from Taco Bell and just eat tacos I think that was a much greater percentage of the impetus than it should have been you know. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. All right. So we're, you, do you go to UCM? So um, I went to CMSU, now UCM, and right, I transferred yes. to Truman State. How long were you um, at? Were, were you in Warrensburg? Three years at Warrensburg and then um, two years at Truman for undergrad and two more for graduate work. And I I was there when Doc Hooley was still there. Mm-hmm. And he, he passed away in that uh, winter, spring of that first year. And then, so I was there when Dr. Bump got there as well. And, Mm. um, you know, it, I, I was, I've been very lucky to have opportunities to be there for people and to, um, get unusual levels of teaching responsibility for my age and everything. Like, you know, working at Jeff city as a sophomore in college, you know, it, that was wild. And, you know, the same thing's true at Truman State. Um, you know, I called Doc Hooley and said, I want to transfer. What can I do? Here's what I've been doing. And he says, first phone call over the phone. He says, oh, well, you can write the music for the drumline and teach the drumline. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. It's, I thought there was this was going to be harder, but right on. You know, that sounds great. 
Yeah. And so um, Dan Peterson uh, set me up um, with a, a great setup over there. And I you know, wrote the music, taught the drum line and all that for actually all four years that I was there. So, Wow. So how do you get connected in drum corps at all? So Mike had marched in the Cavaliers in 1984, mm-hmm. and he made a point of showing us videos and giving us copies of VHS tapes and stuff. And so, you know, I grew up, you know, leaving, getting home from eighth grade or getting home from, you know, high school, popping in 1992 finals and trying to drum along, mm-hmm. you know. And there was never any pressure to do it or anything like that, but he wanted us exposed to that. And, uh, you know, it was just, uh, that was the, the gateway was all Mike, you know. But, okay. So you've, then you kind of were like, well, why, let me pick this group or were, were you just like went and auditioned kind of cold for, for one of those groups? I auditioned for, um, the 1995 Colts went to, I don't know, maybe it was two camps. I can't remember and got recalled for that third camp. So it looked pretty good. Like I was, you know, potentially going to make it, but at the time, um, the high school band director, um, told me that I could not do that, that I would miss band camp and it would be, um, you know, unacceptable. So I, I did not do that that year. Tried out for Colts in part because my buddy Jeff down the street got a a mailer from the Colts and it had, you know, stuff about auditions. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound so bad, you know, went up there and, you know, you get there, at least this is the way it was back in the day. I mean, you get there on Friday night and it feels like everybody is like burning fast rolls and, you know, everybody's like trying to like puff up about each other, you know, and it just was kind of weird, but I just sort of kept my head down and, just did my thing and, you know, got lucky. And I, you know, I marched that first year with Colts and I was really, really into the culture of the group and it, it became a home, you know what I mean? It really did. So when you were marching there, did you have multiple different instructors or were the instructors more consistent during the time you were there? Yeah, there was definitely some changeover in that. Um, my first year, there was a crew that I think, Maybe everybody was different the next year. Maybe not quite everybody, but real close. And then we had a crew, my uh, 97, my second year through 99, my age out, that was mostly the same. And a lot of those guys had marched in the Crossman in like 91, 92, 93, mm-hmm. which me as a kid, if I was drumming to the 92 finals tape, it was, let's put on Crossman's drum solo. You know what I mean? It was uh, such a cool thing. You know, so when those guys got on staff, I was like, well, this is great. You know what I mean? Because the crossmen aren't like that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They had changed to a different sort of style, a different staff and everything. So, um, you know, I just got really interested in that way of doing things and mentality. It, it just was so much fun. It's funny you bring that up. So one of the things I'm uh, especially proud of of my time at Colts is being involved in some of the major changes and traditions that have happened. Um, so my rookie year, I'm drumming at the home show in Dubuque. And I see a guy that I know is from the 95 quad line. Cause I had auditioned. I knew who he was. I saw him play that summer, you know, and he was teaching at, a, at another smaller core and he walked up, he looked at the group and I could, I was so happy he was there and I could see it in his face. He did not see himself in the group. 
because the staff had changed from 95 into 96. Gotcha. And he, he sort of kind of just walked away. And, you know, I was like, Oh, that's a bummer. Like, I can't imagine having marched four years of drum corps and show up and feel like you don't have any connection, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I was part of that. My second year, I was part of the first group of members to get the triangle, which the Colts wear that uh, metal triangle to signify each year. Mm. And that first year um, they were given to us by Jim Rebick, who was, the parent of a guard person, but he had marched, I think blue rock drum and bugle corps way back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, you know what? You guys are special. He said, the crossmen have a Maltese cross spirit of Atlanta has a Delta. The Cavaliers have years. You guys are going to have triangles and I'm going to do it. So he took some old symbols and cut them up and drilled them out. And he showed up at finals at our finals housing site with, with these triangles. And it became a tradition that goes on to this day. You know, the other thing is, I was the staff member that was selected to present one of the options for the core song when that was voted on by the court, because the Colts did not have a core song for most of its uh, existence. And we thought we should have one, you know? And so I was selected to present that and it was eventually selected as the core song. And those things come from what you just talked about, like staff changes Mm-hmm. things like that because they're going to happen but there's got to be some stuff that links past and future and so that was a big part of what i was interested in with the core with the family part of it was making sure that people from the past feel connected to the present and that all came from seeing you know a guy kind of not see himself in the group anymore because the staff changed that's a real bummer you know yeah yeah i bet well who are some of the who are some of the people who were uh, teaching. So uh, my quad tech um, in that second group was Jason Powell, and he'd actually marched snare drum at Crossman. He's the guy with the big ponytail in the snare line. And uh, Mark Smith was there, who had also marched 91, 92, 93, I believe. You know, we had uh, Shane Thomas, uh, Corey Hutchison with the front ensemble, Jerry Carpenter uh, was involved. Eventually, Ryan Thomas uh, was my quad tech, my age out year. Um, so it was a, a group of, you know, just people that, I don't know, they're just there for the right reasons, you know. Of the, of the years you marched, what was your favorite show? My age out year, that um, Voices show. It was, <clears throat> there was a aggression component to it that, you know, I really liked. My second favorite would have to be the one year we weren't in finals when I marched, which was 97. We played a blood, sweat and tears show. Mm. And if you, uh, there's a little video on YouTube from finals that I'm sure is illegal, but, um, you know, in the opener, there's like a minute long drum feature. And, you know, I went back and watched that for the first time in years, a couple of months ago. And it was like, Holy cow, man, we were playing a lot. You know what I mean? We were playing a lot of notes and it was going well. And, you know, it was a cool thing. And that was the beginning of something that carried through 99 um, <clears throat> was a bunch of people that were committed to the core. And, you know, that 99 success was a uh, uh, product of that, you know. And how you said you taught for up in like five, six years after that. Yeah. So I was on tour for a straight decade in the summer, <laughs> pretty much every day. 
Yeah, that's a funny story too. So okay. nowadays we fly staff in and out so that you know they can stay sane. Yes, right, right. Um, and you know, drum corps is not a young person's activity, or excuse me, it's not an old person's activity. It's for young folks, you know. Yes. Yep. So now, you know, there'll be three techs for a section, but you know, they come in and out. Whereas back in the day, it was like I showed up at Memorial Day weekend and didn't get home until I flew home at you know after national after championships. Yeah, which you kind of get nuts. I mean, yes, you know, one day there's no Fruit Loops at the cereal table, and you're like real emotionally bothered by that, and you kind of look around and go, "Yeah, I think I need a block off." You know what I mean? Like, because we used to we used to teach from cows to critique. I mean, we were up first thing, you know, in the morning and doing the thing all the way through to critique after a show. You know, it was a the way it was done, but it, it, there's a better way is what's being done now, you know? Yeah. That's wild. That's <laughs> No, seriously, man. Like it, you, it would you like be something that, something. see the thing is it would be something that like minor that would just like yeah. set you like completely off the rails. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's when you, you just look around and go, yep, this, this is bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Was that the was that the year that you're like maybe maybe I need to do something else with my summers? So my last year doing the full tour type thing, I would take like a little bit of time off around the Fourth of July because I hate parades. Um, I just I just have an ira- the worst day of my life centers around uh, the Fourth of July parade in 1999, oh. and it's an epic story. Um, but it's it I feel like the Forrest Gump of things going wrong. You know how Forrest Gump's like in the right place for all these things? Yeah, yeah. I just am in the wrong place for so many things. And that day was just a, just a slew of wrong stuff, right? Uh-huh. Um, but that last year, 2005, we had uh, shows called Postcards from Home. I mean, these enormous props, mm-hmm. postcards. And there was all this assembly and disassembly that had to be done, you know, twice a day. And I remember sitting in a staff meeting and we were having a conversation about um, – there were some major issues with the props. There were some major issues with the logistics of it and uh, suggesting a solution and being shut down really, really hard. And I remember thinking, you know, I don't need to do this right now. I don't think I will next year. That was the moment was in that meeting. I kind of said, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, you do a decade of drum corps and you look around and go, I'm all right. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, you can't get, can't get away from it too far, you know? So I've taken opportunities to consult and, and, and back somebody else up that kind of thing, which was the sweetest gig in drum corps. Mm. Um, Ben piles was gracious enough to have me out of Colts as a consultant. And then he wanted to have me out of Mandarin's. It never did work out, but you show up, say what you think, drop the mic and get on a plane. You like, Mm -hmm. you know, do it for like a week or less, you know? And it was like, this is okay. This is the gig that I can, I can handle my back can handle, you know? Yeah. That's funny. I mean, what you're making me think of is, is, um, years ago when I talked to, um, Julie Davila. Yes. Julie Davila. And, mm-hmm. um, and she's, that was part of the reason she wanted to get into, uh, judging or to make that like the, the major, her major contribution. She's just like, I come in, I get, I get put up for a weekend. I judge, I leave, I get on with my life. Yeah. Like that's what I want to do. 
sometimes I think about it. It's like, you know what I could have done with 10 summers? I could have learned Russian. Like I could have, you know what I mean? There's so many other things I could have done. Right. But you know, I'm mostly joking, obviously those experiences and, you know, as a 22 year old person getting to teach a world-class drum corps, you know, just born on third base, you know, very privileged. That's great. Tell me a little bit about your time at uh, CMSU, if you don't mind. You know, I was a little bit of a jerk sometimes. I really was. And I, I had some growing up to do. You know, that's I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it was, it was uh, not a great situation for me and transferring was a was a good decision. I like the Kansas City area. I like the, the zone around here. Um, you know, being born in Jeff City, most of that is terrible. You know, it's not like some great place, <laughs> you know, but. But the thing is, you know, you're kind of like between the St. Louis and Kansas City world, you yeah. know. And so when I was at CMSU, I think I realized, like, I really like this, the area out here and the kind of the way people are, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a pretty normal college experience. You know? Well, it's we're interesting with Warrensburg because it's it's close to Kansas City, but it's also not in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also yeah. in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> the professors at UCM and CMSU were very similar to the professors at Truman. Mm -hmm. The difference to me was like the students. Mm -hmm. Okay. I sat in a, like an English class composition class, or it was a lit class. And I did my usual where I like wrote the paper the night before. Mm -hmm. And I always did fine. I walk into class that day and the dude next to me turns to the kid behind him and was like, Hey man, what'd you end up doing with that paragraph? And he's like, yeah, I ended up cutting it out because I couldn't tie it back in. And then, but you should talk to her because she ended up using kind of an idea from that. Dude, they had all peer read each other's papers. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize it was for real now. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just a, just a different vibe. You know, my, my brother went to Truman as well. And the average ACT of his freshman class was off the charts. Yeah. You know? That's about the time they capped the enrollment at six thousand. You know, mm-hmm. so it just was a, a cool experience. And the the drumline at Truman State, it was a lot of fun to teach. I made so many mistakes. I got to get better. You know, mm-hmm. but it always blew me away how the how the band, marching band was allowed to behave at football games. Oh, the chants and stuff. I mean. I don't even want to get into it too much, but like, you know, one of them was like, anytime something bad would happen for our, I mean, our football team was terrible, you know, mm-hmm. and it's anytime something bad would happen to the football team, they would chant. That's all right. That's okay. You'll all work for us someday. Oh yeah. And yeah. I was like, wow, you know, we're, we're, and that was real tame, you know, so, <laughs> right. <laughs> it was, yeah, it yeah. was fun and terrifying, you know? Yeah. What was it like studying under bump? Um, he's awesome. And he is like, above all, like one of the best human beings that I've ever spent any time with. Yeah. You know, I'd follow that guy into a burning house. You know, he just was, he was there for you. He was interested and concerned for you. Um, you know, he, he was super into teaching things in whatever way it need, you needed to get it. He just was very in tune with 
learning styles, that kind of thing. And uh, it was awesome. Yeah. You know, at that point for you, uh, you can tie into previous school experience if you want, but like what kinds of things were you, I say lacking, but like what, what were some of the holes that you had to kind of work through when you get to bump as a, as a percussionist? He is a extraordinary timpanist, right? Yep. And composer for, for timpani. And, you know, I, I remember doing this thing and uh, Tim Linsenbart can talk to you about it too. I feel like he's got a story about this, but it was like striking the pitch, uh, the pitchfork mm-hmm. and, you know, putting it in the right spot, singing an interval and tuning timpani. Right. And it was like, no, that's not, that's not it. It's this. Okay. Try it again. No, that's not it. It's, and it, it was just this like very patient, like working through it. And at the same time, it was like, wow, I'm going to make 480 mistakes in like 15 minutes. You know what I mean? Like, so he's just so good at that stuff, you know, and it, he's just a patient, but it's still like, it's kind of high stress. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's, I mean, it's high stress, but it's also, it's also the way that it's, you're going to freaking do it. Like you have to, you have to mess up that much until you're like, Oh, yeah. That's what he means. Yeah. <laughs> that was this before the new building? Yes. Cuz I think that I don't think I was ever on campus. I think one of the first time I was on campus at Truman was I think they just opened. Was mm. or they soon opened. So what was the what was the the facility when you were there like? Uh I mean it was pretty ramshackle, you know what I mean? There were some practice rooms that you know had seen their best days and you know we had uh offices and classrooms and closets and storage and you know but it was in i think ophelia parish was the name um Mm -hmm. which is now like more classrooms and more administrative space you know the the gathering place for the truman students at that time was what they called the taj the taj mahal and it was just this this uh atrium or open you know kind of an atrium to that building Mm-hmm. And you you could go there, seem like any time of the day, and there'd be people hanging out, you know. So it was cool in that way, you know what I mean? There was a fun place to be. Tell me about the ensemble, percussion ensemble experience there. My experience in high school, not being a well-rounded percussionist, but being, you know, really pretty good at a couple of things. Mm-hmm. And then getting to college and not being able to hang because of that really made me committed to making sure that my kids were well-rounded and that they had opportunities to pursue percussion in college if they wanted to never any pressure, but I just wanted every kid to be able to hack it somewhere. If that's what they wanted to do. When I moved in uh, to the job at Rockwood summit, that was my first um, band job percussion Mm -hmm. specialist. And they had been doing winter drumline for some time and had been fairly successful in the local circuit. Um, But the problem was that they had kids. There were basically two channels. Mm -hmm. They were either trying to be a snare drummer or trying to be a marimbist Mm -hmm. and never the twain shall meet. Yeah. And they were playing those instruments 11 months out of the year, 10 months out of the year. Yeah. And so there would be, I mean, gosh, some of those kids um, were unbelievably talented. 
Um, You know, I can think of a snare drummer and a marimbist right off the top of my head. That's just like, wow, they're so good. But the program wasn't healthy in the way that I think it should be. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was the first percussion specialist. So it's not like the person before could do some of these things. Right. But, you know, that first year I had I had a meeting with the percussion parents at the behest of the director to -hmm. talk about what we were going to do in the spring. And we were going to do percussion ensembles, go to district, go to state have mm-hmm. a concert, you know, and the parents of the upperclassmen, um, you know, I had just called their baby ugly. Yeah. You know? yeah I was like, I knew that was where, that was where this was going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I had a pros and cons list about the pros and cons of winter drumline and pros and cons of percussion ensemble activity mm-hmm. and the freshman parents and the sophomore parents, one of them spoke up and said, wait, so you're telling me if my kid does percussion ensemble and solos and, and does this kind of stuff, that that's going to give them a better chance at getting a scholarship in college for music. And I said, absolutely. Nobody cares that your indoor drumline was second place in one of the A classes in the local circuit. But, you know, take your solo and your ensemble to state and get ones a few times and go be in the all-state band. Boy, now we're talking. Yeah, it was a tense conversation, but... You know, that's the year it started, that very first year. You know, by the time I was done, we were taking uh, every kid in the percussion program was going to uh, perform at state. Nice. You know, it's crazy, you know, and, it, and yeah. it was almost too much of a focus on it in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was leaving for Blue Springs, I wanted to set them up for success in every way that I could. Because so many people pay lip service to that, but they don't really do it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I called um, Peter Rep, and he was a director in Texas at the time. I said, man, you got to come up and take this gig. Um, you know, I told him some of the cool things about it. He's like, yeah, I don't know, man. And I said, okay, it's fine. But just so you know, you're, you're the dude. I, I just, I really want you to come do this. Mm-hmm. And he called me about two days later and he was like, you know what? Maybe I do need to do that. Right. And sure enough, here he is wildly successful he took those kids to perform at Midwest this, this last yeah. year. Was what are you concert? talking about? Yeah. A Missouri percussion ensemble playing at Midwest and it's Rockwood summit. Yeah. That is impossible to imagine in 2009. Yeah. You know, he's done so many amazing things. I'm such a big fan of what he does uh, with that group. So it was really cool to like, get it like part of the way hand it right. off to somebody who's amazing and watch them just, I mean, it just blew up. It was amazing. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. When you finish at Truman, when you're done, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you get connected to Rockwood summit in the first place? I worked at a number of jobs, just trying to kind of trying to find my way eventually because I was teaching drum corps and all those other things. And then I was teaching that still, still going on, right? Oh yeah. 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 And teaching Gateway Indoor, um, oh, okay. that was a, a huge thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And found a lot of success with that. And before I knew it, um, the band director at O'Fallon, Illinois, reached out to me and said that his percussion person was not going to be able to continue and he needed somebody and was I interested. And that was like somewhere between a full-time gig and a part-time gig. Like I, I had a key card and I was paid through the district on like a a big stipend. And then the boosters supplemented that I did lessons. I wrote drill and was at O'Fallon township for a couple of years. And, you know, that second year, that was the year 
that O'Fallon made finals at the St. Louis BOA region for the first time, mm. you know? So there was, it was pretty high profile and uh, Jeff Delalo, the director at Rockwood summit, he had been talking to David Gronenberg because mm. he knew David Dave. from Lindbergh, right? Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, and you know, Dave's incredibly talented. And so he wanted to create a job for Dave. Mm. Well, Dave took the job at Grain Valley and Jeff went to Dave and said, who the heck am I going to call? And he said, you got to call Ken. So he called me up and he said, I'm going to make you a job. And I said, well, I'll believe it when I see it. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. And sure enough, about, I think the next year, there was a full-time position that, you know, I interviewed and got. So it was just kind of the proofs in the pudding sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I'd had so many things go well that it was like, well, I guess he's, I guess he's going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so when you start when you're at Rockwood Summit, what is the typical schedule for your typical schedule there? My first year there was different than the rest. Okay. My first year, I taught two units of guitar at mm. Eureka High School. Okay. Um, beginning and advanced with Cassie Renner, who is an amazing educator. Then I would go to the middle school, do sixth grade percussion. And then I'd go to the high school and do the two band hours uh, doing pullouts for percussion and working with the, the percussion in the band setting as an assistant. And, you know, I could pull the, you know, clarinets for a sectional or, you know, just depended what needed to be done. Sure. But, you know, they really wanted me to focus on the percussion, which was cool. That next year, they got me out of the guitar and then I was six, seven, eight, and then the high school. Mm-hmm. So I taught every kid every day, sixth grade through 12th grade. Pretty special, you know? Yeah. And and that's that that's after the uh, the conversation that we talked about with the parents. That first year is when we had that in like the late fall when marching band was over. Gotcha. Because you know some of the parents were wanting to know when they get to break out the semi truck. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. it's it's a real fun thing. You know, there's no doubt about it. But it wasn't in that context. It wasn't right. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of facilities were you dealing with there? Uh, pretty awesome. Um, not like, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Blue Springs or Green Valley, um, but those facilities are, they're just unbelievably good. This was pretty good. Yeah. We had a a new band room and I had a little percussion studio and, uh, we had like a little ensemble space off that and practice rooms. And when I got there, the equipment was fairly in shambles. I don't think it was mistreated. It just needed attention. And Jeff DeLalo made it a priority to invest and so over that next three years i mean we we really did get a ton of percussion equipment in how long were you there seven years seven years after that once that that kind of job settled in was it pretty much that schedule for the next bunch of years like it didn't change Mm -hmm. very much Mm -mm. yeah same schedule the only thing that did change is that um we originally had two bands Mm -hmm. and the second band in the fall was the kiddos that didn't march yeah uh, and then, uh, cause they had, op- it was optional mm-hmm. and, um, then second semester it would get divided out by audition into that symphonic and concert band. Yeah. But when Becky long, uh, showed up as the assistant director, she turned that second band around in a, a huge way and kids were staying, um, instead of getting their fine arts credit and then just quitting. We eventually had three bands. <laughs> you know, and so one of the things that changed during that time was just facility wise, how we, were, we ended up using the choir room one hour a, a day to, to take care of that third band. 
I eventually did change something with the percussion in the fall. Originally, it had been the whole drum line was seventh hour, but I changed it so that the battery was sixth hour when that concert band was playing, and then the mm. front ensemble was seventh hour. That way, I could you know pay good attention to them and you know just a better situation. Uh, what led you to leave and take the was Blue Springs is where you went after? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Cliff Walker was leaving Blue Springs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know another unbelievable person just i know so talented i mean yeah <laughs> he's at mizzou right i mean he's doing yeah he's at mizzou i've had him on the show yeah he's awesome yeah so you know he was leaving that gig and you know i was interested and it just worked out so uh made the move you know mm-hmm. and, and at the time you know it's like this is okay this is the big leagues you know what i mean and it, it was a a really heady experience you know to, to feel that and you don't know what that's like until you do it and I just had this because hunger. It, so, because it, it, I just, uh, because it felt like, even though it is a high school, like you were making a, this is a leap now mm-hmm. to get, mm-hmm. to go to Blue Springs. Yeah, it did. Because it was, it was it because partially because of just pressure from, from previous experience. Now you were at a place that, that had established something really, really strong. You know, it was a prestigious position. I had a, a good friend of mine at Midwest that year walk up to me in the hallway or somewhere and put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, dude, you're the man. And I was like, what? He like repeats it solemnly. You're the man. I was like, what are we doing right now? And he just, he, he wouldn't stop sort of telling me that. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, you realize that I'm doing like, all the things that I did at Rockwood summit, right? Like none of that has changed. It's just a different, you know, uniform and program, right? you know, but there was, there was a sort of strain. I call it band famous. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. it's weird. It's weird. Try explaining to a kindergarten teacher that you were a famous band director. Be like, (laughs) uh, yeah. Okay. And I'm wasn't a famous band director, but you know what I'm getting at, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I do want to talk to you about um, in some detail is my work as a mentor to the teachers that I serve in some cases. Plenty of them don't need me to mentor them about anything. Sure. And in their case, you know, I tend to be the person that walks in that knows what they're going through. Right. Sure. Yeah. But I mentor plenty of young teachers and my experiences, you know, have given me um, interesting perspective to help them as they struggle through things. Here is a thing that I consider to be a fact is that most band people mm-hmm. gotta I love you, you know what I mean? But they often are their own worst enemy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. They will take a program <clears throat> that is plenty happy, plenty successful, and turn the temperature up. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, we gotta go to more contests. We gotta rehearse on Saturdays now. And we've got to go apply for Midwest and we've got to apply for MMEA and we've got to do And then before you know it, these people are leaving the job that they created because it's too much. You know, I went to uh, Blue Springs because it was a, it it just felt like an offer. How could you refuse that? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I got there and I did it for one year Mm -hmm. and it was in the grand scheme of things, despite working for some of the best directors in the country, mm-hmm. I eventually decided that it just wasn't for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and so I got out and have done some different things. Yeah. Um, that's a thing that I try to pass on to my 
young teachers mm-hmm. when I'm mentoring is uh, there's a couple of things. Mm-hmm. So one, my mantra is there's nothing wrong with making music with happy kids. You know, yeah, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. You can do a full career doing amazing work, just making music with happy kids. And then the second thing was you don't have to win band and vanquish your foes to be a good band director, you know, and there's a lot of people trying to, I don't know, make a name or do the thing that they think they want to do, you know? And so I'll follow that up with also don't turn your program into something you're not going to want to do when you're 57 years old, because we know the trajectory, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they start out as a percussion specialist or, you know, a assistant head band director and they take the thing up and up and up and up and up. Yeah. And then they leave and they go to a middle school. Where did they don't have to do band or they don't have to, do, don't marching. have to do marching band. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, I know. And, you know, and I love the marching arts. Obviously I spend yeah. too much time doing it, but there has to be, nobody is telling students like, Hey, you don't have to play it at MMEA to be an incredible band director. You don't have to play at Midwest. You don't have to, you know, win, make BOA regional, super regional finals. You just, you don't. And I'll often tell these younger teachers, you got to figure out what your community wants from your band and what your administration wants from your band and what your students want from your band. Yeah. Because as we all know, kids will get excited about the thing you tell them to get excited about. There's a lot of ego, I think, that goes into that. And it's mm-hmm. difficult when somebody is a young, you know, charging, you know, band director and I can take on the world. And, you know, that enthusiasm is important, yeah. you know, but I think it's important that people know that that's not the only path they can take. Great case in point. I love my strings, people. Mm-hmm. Palin Strings, um, PMC Strings is taking off our instruments or we have our own private label string instruments. Mm-hmm. and. Um, all I have to do is get people to play them. It's amazing. Like these are the instruments we rent. And they're like, are you kidding me? Nope. They're, they're, they're awesome. Right. Yeah. So I've gotten to spend a lot of time with some amazing strings teachers, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Strings teachers don't do that. Strings teachers are not trying to vanquish their foes. Yeah. They're not trying to prove to the world that they're the greatest strings teacher in the universe. Mm-hmm. They're making music with kids. They're having concerts. They're mixing up the repertoire between classic and contemporary. They're working on, you know, uh, composers of color, uh, you know, female composers. They're they're working through all these things that good programs don't push anything to the side, right? Yeah. But yeah. that oftentimes become tertiary or or worse. Yeah. Uh, in the foci of that program. So mm-hmm. I absolutely love that part of being an education representative. Um, and that's the cool thing about Palin, a lot of music, and there's nothing wrong with the retired band directors being an education representative. There's not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, Palin tends to hire people in their prime. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, you know, I go into a place and it's, we're going to talk about electronics for the front ensemble. Yeah. And I can tell them, well, Hey man, there's, you can get as stupid as you want. You know what I mean? We could drop $250,000 without thinking about it, right? Sure. There's passive speakers, active speakers, line array. What's your biggest 
What's your biggest stadium you're going to play in? Carrollton Band Day. Okay. You don't need line array and you don't need active speakers to sound great in that situation. And so I'm able to talk to people about from my own experience, you know, what you need and what you don't need. You know, if you're going to Lucas Oil Stadium, we need to talk. You know what I mean? There's some things to know. If you're playing in St. Louis, there's some things to know about that dome. And it's real fun. You know, remember I was talking about Tyler Chiarelli, talking Mm -hmm. to that touring musician about being in this arena or that arena. You know, to be able to do that same kind of level for the band folks on some of these things is super cool. You know, love the mentoring part. If I miss, you know, I miss stuff about teaching, right? Mm-hmm. I don't miss the bureaucratic boogaloo. Mm-hmm. I don't miss being told to come up with a common assessment between choir, band, orchestra, and theater. Let that sink in for a minute. Awesome. I don't miss that. Yeah. But I do miss the mentoring part. Sure. You know? This is, I'll be honest, this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, is because I knew, um, again, without getting into specifics on that, I knew that that you would have some like experiences in your teaching that were that were that lend you to want to be a mentor like i'll put it that mm-hmm. way you know mm-hmm. and and i think one of the things that i i think about a lot is is mental health for sure know that that's the kind of thing that whether on the percussion specialist side on the band director side the ways that people can get burned out fast mm-hmm. in these jobs is is a real thing your framing of it and i want you to talk a little bit more about this your framing of it is that you can do that and it ends up that or maybe w- without it being a, a, a fully conscious decision, someone can create the monster. Yeah. Without it being a plan. It's just like it just it that's where it went. Yeah. Some of the top directors in, you know, especially in the BOA activity, uh, including, you know, somebody locally that, you know, is an unbelievable director will say, yeah, man, you got to feed the monster you create. So. You can't stop feeding it. You know, uh, I, I like to say you can't unring a bell, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Parents and kids will care about the things you tell them to care about. And if you tell them to care about putting in all the hours to make finals at uh, the St. Louis super regional, right? Mm-hmm. They'll care. Yeah. They'll get after it, you mm-hmm. know, and they will have a good experience too. If yeah. everybody's putting education and kids first. But I think that we have maybe lost our way. Mm-hmm. In some ways, yeah. um, that students' mental health has taken a backseat to programmers, designers, staff members, building the resume, making a living, not as a teacher, but as a private uh, independent contractor, mm-hmm. right? And the success is the whole reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that's not true for everybody. I'm not trying to paint with too broad a brush. I'm just saying that it can happen. I think that we as teachers, mentors, um, you know, folks that have been around, uh, the men and women that have done this stuff need to share with people the pitfalls because it happens so easily. Yeah. And you look at, okay, for instance, when I uh, announced on social media that I was leaving Blue Springs, the reactions that people gave me were really interesting. A lot of caring, concern, a lot of, you know, are you okay? Is there anything I can do? Yep, I'm fine. Um, Incredulous responses. Can't believe it, right? But over the years, I've had, I want to say no less than 12 
percussion specialists at major programs ask me, hey, and I will never say their names, sure, but sure. ask me, hey, how do I get out? How did you get out? Yeah. Always the same question. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, you don't, I don't need to name specifics. Percussion specialists mm-hmm. are, I mean, it's a revolving we could, door. We could name that. I mean, I, I know some, yep. you know some. We pr- yep. probably might be the same people, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mental health is health. The system is set up to chew up people because there will always be fresh meat for the grinder, so to speak. Mm-hmm. There will always be someone who's willing to be at school until 8 39 10 o'clock four or five days a week and do an eight-hour rehearsal day on a saturday there are there will always be people who are willing with concert band and symphonic band and wind ensemble preparing for large ensemble mm-hmm. for misha there will always be people that are willing to schedule eight two-hour rehearsals at night for the concert band and i'm not sure that that is the best thing for let's say most students right? right there are definitely some for whom this is their thing this is their lifeline you know yeah. and they would be a band every second that you let them do it you know mm-hmm. but um i think most kiddos go along with these things and most parents go along with these things and they have in the back of their mind like i don't know man this isn't this doesn't feel real good i feel tired i feel crazy i feel sick i feel you know and I think, I think maybe we've lost our way a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so the teachers that I mentor, you know, obviously I want to provide them great service and, you know, all the things that we do. The, okay. This is the other thing I was going to tell you about being an ed rep is that the young, the young folks and young is a relative term, right? Yeah. Um, you know, they need a mentor. Great. You know what I mean? I'm totally willing to do that. It's fun. I love yeah. it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, plenty of directors don't need a mentor. But what they need is somebody that walks into their band room that knows what they're going through to bounce some ideas and stuff like that. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of one man and one woman shows at school districts around Missouri, more of those schools than, you know, ones with three and four directors on staff. Right. And they're usually in either the most remote rural places or they're in the most urban school. They're in a school in the middle of a city that has like no resources at all or something. Mm -hmm. And they don't have somebody to talk to that actually understands. So when I walk in, sometimes it's like, hey, man, I want to do an instrument try at night. I did one last night, right? And it was, you know, just an idea the director had. Hey, do you ever like, do people pull kids in and like do a special event to like recruit fifth graders in the sixth grade band? Totally, man, we can do that. And I showed up with all the equipment, all the mouthpieces and spray and all the stuff. And we just had a fun time. Yeah. And, you know, that guy probably would not have done that just on his own, but because he was, he had the idea, you know, and then he just needed a little guidance. Yeah. Um, you know, that stuff is fun. I find my job to be part, I'm like the world's worst salesperson. Like, I'll tell people, no, you don't need that. You know what I mean? Like, pretty often, right? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or you could consider this, it's a lower cost option. Pretty much all the time, right? Yeah. There's plenty of things that that you know you there's layer there's levels, right? Sure. Do you need a black swamp tambourine for your middle school? I mean, it would be awesome. They yeah. sound better. Maybe mm-hmm. you don't need that right now. You know, if yeah. you're hurting, for, you know, all your mouths are frayed. Well, let's talk about it. You know, yeah, yeah. Of 
I think the job is part counselor, yeah, part salesperson, uh, and part mentor. And you know what I actually really like about this gig is feeling like I've made a difference. So there's a kiddo in a school that I serve that I was there at the school on Wednesday mm-hmm. and I drove away. It's about an hour and five minutes to get there. Drove away, got all the way back to where I was going uh, to Liberty. Mm-hmm. And I get a call. Hey, this kid just dropped her Barry Sachs and she's playing at state. So an ensemble on Saturday, mm-hmm. what can we do? I drove my myself you know, an hour and five minutes back, I picked it up, called the repair shop, talked about what we could move around because everything's about, you know, give and take and priorities, right? What can we move around that's not urgent, Mm -hmm. right? Found some things, brought it back, they fixed it. And then yesterday I did an instrument fitting in Kansas, um, a couple of visits, went back to the store, picked up this repaired instrument, drove the hour and whatever out there Mm -hmm. to get it to... I, we had some crazy setup because the school was going to be closed at that time. We got it to somebody's house and got it figured out and then drove up and did this event until, you know, seven 30 or whatever that night. And it, it was a 12 hour day. Right. Yeah. But it was awesome because I know there's a kiddo who's going to play that Barry sax, And I don't know if they're going to three or two or one, it really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They're going to have the experience of playing in state soul and ensemble because I went out of my way to make sure that we did something special. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that is so cool. Yeah. Um, and it so means I a lot like, to that. And it means a lot to that director that you did that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just, I love being there for people when the chips are down. Um, I love serving. I serve KCPS, Kansas city public mm-hmm. schools. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't rent a single instrument from us. And, you know, a lot of folks don't serve them because of that. Yeah. But those directors are so important to me, yeah. you know, they're amazing and their kids deserve good music education. Mm-hmm. That fine arts coordinator over there is doing amazing things and building up, you know, programs that have gone through some neglect over the past couple of decades. Yeah. It's that work. Hey man, that's really important work, yeah. you know? So I love that. The thing I had to learn related to that, because I have like some anxiety kind of stuff. I'm always harder on myself sure. than anybody else is. Right. Mm-hmm. What I had to learn I guess, is that not every request for a box of reeds is a five alarm fire. And when you're in the middle of the craziness, everything feels like an emergency. And so I'm having to learn, still working on it, how to prioritize so that everybody who's got a major problem is getting it taken care of as fast as humanly possible. And everybody who has needs that are intermediate level needs, we're getting to them pretty quick. And if mm-hmm. something can wait, then oh, in the case of an emergency, that thing can wait a couple of days. Let's do that. Yeah. You know, that's not how my mind works, though. I have to I have to work on that. Kent, I finished with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Nice. And um, I'm going to skip the, f- the usual one because we've talked about I usually open with like issue that most gets under your skin and drives the most nuts. I feel like we just covered that. Or <laughs> so I'm not going to. So I'm actually going to kind of jump to the fun stuff. First question is, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of like, I'm sure it's happened, you know, but it's, it's because I say crazy things and then people will like repeat it. I, I, I just, yeah, I don't know. 
I will okay. say one time the Summit Kids mm-hmm. showed up with my like an eight inch cut out of my face taped mm-hmm. to every drum and every instrument. <laughs> showed up to rehearsal with my face all over everything. The O'Fallon Kids did something too. They showed up for the Mozingo Drumline Contest. Mm-hmm. They showed up. I said, "Wear your Sunday best," and they went which was a joke and they went totally literal and they were all wearing like dresses and shirts and ties and stuff. Right. So we get to the, um, the location and, you know, we go to set up and then they all went and they changed clothes and they had tie dyed t-shirts with my face on it. And it said, Oh, Fallon's secret weapon. Right. <laughs> and so I walked around all day seeing my face on kids shirts and I was like, this is weird, man. This is not, so that was what came to mind when you said like uh, impression, you know, I've never, yeah. I don't know that I've had anybody do like a dress up like me and say stuff kind of thing, but those kids putting my face on everything that was disturbing, you know, <laughs> that was weird. You know? <laughs> that's awesome. That's a good, that's a good one. That's a good answer. What is your biggest kitchen mess up? I once poured water into an instant pot that did not have the pot in it. So the water oh. just poured through the electronics onto the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally blew it, yeah. What what happened? It did not work. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> it went to that great kitchen in the sky, you know. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Um, what is the most impractical item of clothing you own? I don't know. I can tell you the most practical clothing I own is these big, ugly, wide brim hats. So if I'm working in the summer with somebody or whatever, I'm not burning my ears off. Mm. But like we wear our blue PMC yep. polos in Kansas City every day because we want to, yeah, yeah. you know, be like a director, like a colleague, when yeah, we're yeah, in sure. school, you know, and I love it. I'm not going to lie. There's plenty of people that would really hate that. I love it. I wake up. I'm like, what am I going to wear? Oh yeah. I'm going to wear this. Right. So when it comes to clothing, practical is kind of the name of my game. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you ever watched Mad Men, but it would be like, uh, uh, when Don Draper would yank the, um, the new white button down shirt from his drawer basically. And just be like, yeah, I'm just going to put that on and, uh, just like pull it right out of the, the package, put it on, put a tie on. Well, and Pete, what's the most impractical piece of clothing you own? It's it, it's my it's an easy answer. I still have my high school soccer jersey. Uh, oh, yeah, because it, it oh. has my name on it. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. You know what I, mean, I have? It's, it's, I don't need to have it, but I don't. There's no, but I like it. It's it's nostalgic. <laughs> okay, now I've got an answer for you. That yeah, really helped. It. Yeah, yeah. I still have my Truman Bands staff jacket which was like a big satin, ugly white and purple, like puffer jacket. I think I've seen these. (laughs) Oh yeah. I've still got it, man. I can't get rid of it. That, and I've got like my, my, I could never throw it away, but I've got my core jacket because I was marching between the old core jacket and the new core jacket. Mm -hmm. So I've got the red plastic with the elastic wrists and bottom and patches all over it. And that's completely impractical. Not only one, does it not fit in any way, shape or form, to fashion it's there's nah i can't you know (laughs) (laughs) nice what's a great movie and what's a terrible movie broken arrow is a terrible movie with john travolta yes and uh 
I can't remember the other dude's name. Was it Christian but, Slater in that? Yep, Christian Slater. Wow. At one point, a girl swims through the water and climbs into a rowboat underneath like some coverings. And people get in the boat and like they motor like, you know, a hundred feet to somewhere else, get out of the boat. And she throws off the thing and she's totally dry and her hair is perfectly quaffed. And it's like, are you being serious right now? Like that, that is a terrible, terrible piece of film. I really like, well, a lot of things, um, but I'm a huge Star Wars nerd. Mm. Just all over the place with Star Wars. And it's difficult for me between Rogue One and The Empire Strikes Back. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, I just finished up the latest season of The Mandalorian, which I know is a series, but I mean, come on. We live in the best timeline in this one way. Like we're getting all this cool Star Wars content, you know? Yeah. I would say like, it's almost unanimous that, that of the, of all the new Star Wars, since the stuff from the, like, like basically return of the Jedi, it's like rogue one is everyone's number one favorite of all the new stuff, all the films. And then, and it's like, yeah, sometimes it's, they'll be like, well, I don't know if it's as good as Empire, but you know. Yeah. Really. <laughs> I mean, it's like choosing between your children, you know? Yeah. So, so I have twins. Uh, I have 10 year old twins, a boy and a girl. Yeah. And uh, I used to teach Gateway Indoor with Chad Shadler, right? He has four kids. At the time, he had three kids. And mm-hmm. so when my twins were, you know, uh, almost had almost arrived, you know, Chad said, well, it's all fun and games till they learn to walk. And then one day, one of them goes one direction, one of them goes the other, and you have to decide which one you love more. <laughs> wow, man. Okay. All wow. Right. But yeah, Empire Strikes Back and Rogue One is like, you know, choosing one of your children, you know? Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's great. Uh, what's a favorite book? Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Oh, yeah. So Zora Neale Hurston was amazing as a human being. Yes. She was such a cool human. Her autobiography is mostly fiction. And one of her fiction books is basically autobiographical. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Like She did not care. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, their eyes were watching God. Some of the, uh, some of the imagery, the, the language paints such a beautiful picture. In my mind, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to to find something better. Yeah, they had a there was a great documentary about her recently on PBS where it was and it was all about her anthropo- anthropological work. Yeah, with Franz Boas. In, yes, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and and yeah, basically being the first person to document our first African American to document the African American experience. And, in, mm-hmm. and study it in the, in the way that she did. Yeah, she did recordings in mm-hmm. Haiti of like voodoo chants and songs. And yeah. there's some real cool stuff in the Library of Congress. If anybody's interested in her, there's audio from her uh, interviews and stuff. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. And, and she's playing instruments and singing. And mm-hmm. yeah, 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 she was incredible. Something, I guess, pop culturally related, but maybe on the more obscure side. Well, Depending on the uh, on the population, Zora Neil Zora Neil Hurston would be <laughs> obscure, or would be really well known, you know. Um, but what's something on the kind of on the more obscure pop side that if you 
meet someone and they're like, oh, I like blank, whatever that is. And you immediately or, or just go, all right, we're good. Battlestar Galactica, the reimagined Ronald D. Moore version that came out in the like 2000s. Oh, yeah. Yep. That series is in my mind, like society was climbing, climbing. Yeah. Ronald D. Moore made Battlestar Galactica and Bear McCreary made that soundtrack. Uh-huh. And then it's all downhill from there. <laughs> Adam Bruce, who you had on the show and who I yeah. work with at Palin. Yeah. Uh, he and I share a mild obsession with Battlestar Galactica. Um, and every once in a while, we'll text each other some obscure random thing from one of the shows. It's pretty nice. Nice. That's That's super awesome. All right. What is your best non-life-threatening injury? I'm going to go with two. Okay. okay? Because I'm accident-prone. So mm-hmm. I was playing baseball in elementary school, and I was terrible. I'm really surprised that the drum corps thing went as well as it did because athletically and coordination-wise, it's kind of I was a late bloomer, shall we say. Yeah. So I'm in left field. Oh, by the way, my number in baseball was 55. And the the coach used to joke that I was the speed limit, but I wasn't very fast. So that was kind of like a joke, you know? Um, so I'm in left field and one of the coaches, oh, it was funny, but one of the coaches is hitting fly balls and we're catching and throwing them back. And mm-hmm. the sun was in my eye. So I put the glove in like to cover my eye, right? I was like, well, I better check on the ball and see where it is. So I pulled the glove out of the way and the ball was like here. Right. Uh-huh. It hits me in the glasses. My glasses cut my face up. So I had like stitches like right here, right here, all around my eye kind of thing. Oh my gosh. So because I, you know, was shading the sun, you know, mm-hmm. shading my eyes, right? Yeah, yeah. The other funny thing is when I was in elementary school, I broke a leg at a at a track meet. I had a hairline fracture that I got at a track meet. Okay. Wow. However, I got that hairline fracture at a track meet walking back to the bus <laughs> i <laughs> stepped in a hole and uh-huh. i fell funny and it, oh, it, no. it like cracked i heard it was like a green stick fracture or something like that wow. so it wasn't like a compound thing you know something gross it was just it hurt you know mm-hmm. but uh yeah so i you know i like to tell people yeah you know i did track i mean i broke my leg once but i was walking back to the bus you know <laughs> that's awesome (laughs) yeah yeah so i couldn't just pick one that's how like accident prone i am you know no those are really solid those are really good all right well ken do you have a sports fandom like i'm a terrible sports fan Mm -hmm. i don't follow teams and no stats and like oh my gosh they're gonna trade this guy it's just i've never gotten into it but i do love sports Mm -hmm. in terms of what it can do for a community Mm-hmm. Right. So when I was in St. Louis area, you know, I was a Cardinals fan growing up in Jeff city. Again, that's one of the only things that doesn't suck about growing up in Jeff city is that you can root for the Cardinals or the Royals. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now it's predominantly a Cardinals place, but you know, yes. I think it's pretty defensible, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. um, so if the past, if the past, like almost 40 years or any indication, yes, it makes sense to be a Cardinals fan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> So I was a Cardinals fan. I've got my Musial jersey. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I wanted something that was be timeless, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, we moved to Blue Springs and I was like, you know, I'm going to root for the Royals. This is my my town now. And yeah, yeah. it's kind of a cool thing. 
And uh, something interesting happened. So I had a picture taken at like a housewarming party or something within the first couple of months. I got to KC and I had a car, uh, excuse me, a Royals hat on. And somebody commented on my Facebook post and said, like, yeah, just like everybody else in Kansas City, you've got a brand new Royals hat because it was the year after they had won the World Series. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I was like, uh, OK, man, you know what I mean? Like it's for me, it's always about community. Right. Yeah. So being in Kansas City and having the Chiefs do what they've done the last four years has been incredible. Yeah. Um, it's a real hard time to be a Royals fan. But, you know, I bust out my Royals polo and mm-hmm. I really have enjoyed seeing what the Chiefs have done yeah. for this community, just kind of pulling people together for a minute, you know. Well, and the other good news about the Royals is that you can kind of go to any game you want. I mean, there's plenty of good seats available. And- As I say, it's uh, it's an affordable afternoon out right yes. now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah. Uh, you get the general admission seats and find yourself in a box, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we... I always check and see whenever the... Because I grew up in New York, so Yankee, whenever the Yankees come once a year... And I'm always like, if I'm around, I tend to go and it's, and it's usually like, as you can imagine, it's like 65% Yankees fans for all the yeah. Yankees. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I once got ruined for, for sporting events. Um, I got tickets to a box to box seats in Columbia at Furrow field mm. for a football game. It was somebody had them and didn't need them. And yeah. so I showed up and was in the box with the food and the drinks. And yeah. I was like, man, I can't, I can't sit in the nosebleeds anymore. I'm, I'm ruined for that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's great. All right. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to? They still want to get to India, mm. Germany. You know, I've, I've been really lucky. I've gone to Hawaii twice mm. on band trips, right? Yeah. I've been to England four times and I've only paid one time because I was doing clinics for British youth band association or for a drum corps over there. Yeah. Um, but my family hails from Germany. My ancestry is from Germany. So I would really like to see that. And my father, who served in the army during Vietnam and before that, and around that time, um, he was in Germany for quite a while as a field artillery officer. So I'd kind of like to see some things out there that he's talked about. And, uh, and then India, but I'm like terrified to go to India because I know exactly zero of the language. So, you know, I would probably show up, starve to death and not know where the bathroom is, you know. Well, most of India is actually English speaking, so you wouldn't. Is it really? Uh, yeah. Well, now I feel better. I mean, time yeah. to book a flight. You time know? to go. Time to go. <laughs> couple last couple. Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. You, you you just found a good one, I think. So, yeah. 1997, we're playing a blood, sweat, and tears show at Colts. Of course, drum corps is very different at that point, but we're, we're halted and we're um, doing the Crossman thing where we're tapping our heel, you know what I mean? And we're grooving out to Lucretia McEvil, right? Mm-hmm. Nice. So we got this bum, bum, ba dum, ba dum, bum, bum, ba dum, ba dum, ba dum, check it, 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 right? Fun thing, right? But we brought our, the quads brought our sticks out to three and four without going out to one and two we just shot our sticks out to three and four it was just something somebody wanted to do so we put it in right Mm -hmm. so i didn't have a good hold on my sticks and i i bonked the tip of my i had a mallet mallets i bonked the tip of the mallet on drum four out of my right hand and it fell legitimately onto my shoes so there i am with my left hand with a stick and with a mallet i'm like great so i grab 
I looked down and I grabbed a stick that we used somewhere else, came back up with it to play. By the time I did that, the judge, I think it was Alan Christensen. I swear, I think it was. He's standing in front of me with the mallet, holding it out. <laughs> but I just grabbed the stick, right? Yeah. So I'm like, gosh, dang it. So I put the stick away and I look up and he's walked away because I had a stick. <laughs> so I look down at the stick bag and I grab the stick again, right? And I, I pull the stick out and he's standing there again with the mallet, <laughs> right? Two times it happened. And then finally I like shoved the stick in and I put my hand out in this real like expressive way. And he walks up, he goes, I think this is yours. And hands me a mallet. <laughs> you know, it just was like, uh, and of course the next morning we listen to the drum tape. Yeah. Right. So you're like, you hear this drumming, you hear, I, but I, what, I think this is yours. And it, everybody laughs at me and it was just, you know, so that was, uh, that you picked the good one with that question that I, I love that story. <laughs> <laughs> I just I do like the fact that you're like, give me the damn stick. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you know, it was it was very much like, okay, I'm done getting the other stick. I'm going to stand here with my hand out, bring it over here. You know, it was so awkward. It's like you couldn't possibly make it up. You know, right? Yeah, he had like he had like reached down and got it off my shoe, and I didn't really know what was going on because I was messing with that stick bag. You know, yeah. That what was that like? What four seconds? How long was that? That whole an eternity. That well, it I know. Was, it, 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 yes, eternally it was right? eternally. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was probably like eight bars, you know. Yes. <laughs> but in my mind, it was like an entire year of my life trying to get that damn mallet back, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this. Oh, yeah. I don't remember any scores from any show I was ever in in the marching arts or, mm -hmm. you know, but I remember the weird stuff. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. The completely awkward, weird stuff. That's that, that like shared misery. And like, you know, there's something about that, that musicians really latch on to, you know, mm -hmm. those funny self-deprecating stories. I love it. Yeah. 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 That's great. All right. Kent, last question. What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently. I listen to all kinds of music okay. so much so that people don't like it when I DJ in the car, you know what I mean? Cause it's sure. too eclectic. I have been listening to a, it's a, a recording that it's like uh, sleep by Eric Whitaker. And it's with the, I think it's like called the Eric Whitaker singers. And basically okay. it was during COVID when everybody sent, he had a project and everybody sent in videos of them singing and, yeah. That's just so cool. And we had this shared misery of, you know, going through lockdown and all those kind of things. And I didn't know that was a thing at the time. I had no idea that that had happened. And I stumbled upon it, I don't know, a month or two ago. And, you know, I've, I've got a feel good playlist. Of course, if you're driving a lot, you know what I mean? You're listening to, you know, Pete's percussion podcast, but once you've listened to every episode three times, you know, right, you have of course. To to something else. So, I mean, um, I guess you could listen to a fourth time if you're, <laughs> if you're really cared, Kent. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, uh, it was a thing I put into my feel good playlist. It's just really nice, you know. Is it a YouTube video? Is it was a Spotify there, record? There's a cool YouTube video that shows this like universe 
And on the planets are like all these little squares of all the people singing. You know what I mean? And yeah. I really like that a lot, but I did find it on Apple Music um, yeah. and just popped it in a playlist. So, but I, you know, I listen to country, gangster rap, um, yeah. you know, Eric Whitaker. I mean, by the time you just do those three things in a ride with a normal person, they're like, okay, man, you're done. You know? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. When are you going to play the Eagles? Cause then I, cause then I can like settle it <laughs> and see the big Lebowski is very important to me. Oh, all right. Um, love that movie. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am an ordained Dudist minister, <laughs> Dudist priest. Right. Okay. Um, I can actually perform weddings. I have never done it, but mm. I totally can. Nice. And uh, you just reminded me of the dude playing the, the Eagles in the cab. And he's like, you know, he doesn't want to hear it. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can't say what he said, but yeah. Right. Well, you could. <laughs> it's up to you. You do more than half. <laughs> Such a total and complete pleasure talking to Kent here. I wish him and the Palin folks the best of luck in the future and continued success. Thanks, Kent. This week's rave is another truly, truly classic film, this time from 1935. It's The Bride of Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff as the monster, Colin Clive, Ernest Thesiger, and Elsa Lanchester in the dual role of the actual Bride of Frankenstein, and the author of the novel, Mary Shelley. And the movie is directed by James Whale. A bit of important backstory before we go. As many of you who've listened to the podcast may be aware, I am a film movie buff, particularly on the classic film side. Some of that started from when I was young, and my parents had taped this film, among a number of others, on our brand new VCR. And I watched this particular film a lot growing up. I liked it then, and subsequent watches of it over the years confirmed that it is still a great movie. I happened to catch both this and the original Frankenstein movie from 1931 with all the same principal actors this past week, and the original is not even remotely as good as The Bride of Frankenstein. The general plot is that, okay, spoiler alert for a movie that's over 90 years old, the original Frankenstein movie ends at the point where the monster is thought to be killed in a castle that is on fire and collapses upon itself. Well, turns out, no. He's captured, he escapes, he's back on the loose, etc. Colin Clive, a.k.a. Dr. Frankenstein, then collaborates with Ernest Thesiger, a.k.a. Dr. Pretorius, his colleague of some sort, who develops miniature people. A plot point I'd completely forgotten about, and the two collaborate to make a mate for the monster played by Elsa Lanchester. Plot-wise, we'll stop there. Some of the scenes from The Bride of Frankenstein still stand out. To me, the most prominent is a famous scene where, while on the loose, the monster finds himself outside of a house in the woods where a blind man lives. He hears the sound of the blind man playing Franz Schubert's Ave Maria on violin, And it brings the monster joy, and the blind man, understanding he has another human to interact with, is completely overcome with emotion, which occurs 
while a fully orchestrated version of Ave Maria is playing in the movie score. It is really incredible. And the blind man, who cannot see that this person is so shunned by everyone else, takes in the monster, teaches him to say words, to eat, to read, and humanizes him to make him more able to exist in the world. It's incredibly beautiful, but of course, it does not last, and outsiders break this whole thing up. Additionally, there's something about this particular story of Frankenstein that always gets me. One item to remember about the monster is this. What if you entered the world as someone who looked like they were in their 30s, an adult, but you have no knowledge of anything? You have no memories, no book knowledge, no sense of self. You have nothing learned or remembered. How hard would it be for the monster to interact with the world and the world to interact with the monster? It's a sobering philosophical question that informs this story. At just 75 minutes, it is very worthy of your time. Still, check out The Bride of Frankenstein. It's still a classic movie. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time.